Balancing Death Kirk is a weekly KeyForge podcast focused on competitive play. The podcast is hosted by Kita Mode and Kodamarin. The show is here for listeners to gain a better understanding of how to evaluate decks, how to evaluate their own board position, and how to anticipate opponents' decisions. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of Bouncing Death Quark. I am Kira Mode. I am here with Kodamarin. How's it going? And today we're going to be talking about game warping passive effects in Age of Ascension specifically. Um, this is part of our review where we want to talk about there, how there are things that are in set two that really aren't in set one. So in set one, uh, if you're looking at game warping effects, there's really only three. There's Speed Sigil, there's Evasion Sigil, and there's Soul Snatcher. So what these three cards do is if I play them, every single card in your hand and every single card on your board, their value changes based on me having one of these three cards on the table. Yeah, there are a lot of little things that happen in Coda, but those are the three cards that we think really change the game universally. You put them on the table and every single card you kind of have to feel, uh, treat a little bit differently. Um, and the reason that we what we point those out is they are symmetrical and they affect your opponent. A lot of the cards that we want to talk about in Age of Ascension, because we feel that there are a lot more and a lot more different kinds of effects, they're interactive. They, t- they deal with your opponent, they deal with you, uh, and there's a lot of choices about not only how you're going to deal with these things, but if you can't deal with those things, how you're going to adjust to those things. Yeah, and, and adjustment's the key thing. So with the three that we mentioned, those are really the only three in set one, and all three of them just pretty much make the game go faster, right? The answer to these is reap more, gain more amber, draw more cards, right? It's not rocket science here. But in set two, the cards that warp the game some of them make you want to go slower, some of them make you want to fight more, some of them want make you want to reap more. Like there's more diversity of effects and that we find that really interesting and something worth talking about for our episodes. Yeah, and these effects we're talking about, they're passive effects. We're not talking about uh, a couple of these interesting action cards that aren't always active. There are cards, I mean, Lash is a very good example of a card that is always a threat and has been since set 1, but there's a decision to go into dis when you want to lash somebody and the cards that we want to focus on right now are the passive ones that are kind of you put them on the table and if they aren't destroyed then they warp the game kind of going forward Mm. and to kind of outline these we think that there are a a number of artifacts that even pair nicely together when we talk about them uh, that do this and the reason we want to focus on the artifacts is yes there are a lot of creatures that do similar things to these artifacts uh, which we will kind of go over when we talk about them but the artifacts are harder to destroy. And sometimes you might have a deck that you really want to bring to an Archon event, and they don't have, like, you might have a remote access even, but that doesn't kill a card like the Orb Invictus, right? Yeah, or you might even have the Poltergeist, right? But then there's this question of, like, okay, do I have to hard mulligan for the Poltergeist, and if I draw it early, do I have to hold on to it for the entire game? Or can I potentially just play around this, right? If this game warping effect comes down, can I just adjust my play, or do I have to go all in on my silver bullet? And so for the purposes of talking about this, for the artifacts, we're going to run on the assumption you either do not have the silver bullet or are not going to sacrifice your entire game plan for the silver bullet and how you can adjust to them. Right. So the first place we're going to start with this is the Orban Invictus and the similar Mars card, the Amber Conduction Unit. For those of you who don't know them, Orban Invictus says every single creature that reaps gets stunned. Uh, but the Amber Conduction Unit says each time, uh, after the first enemy creature reaps, so it only affects your opponent, uh, then it stuns. 
only if it's the first one. And there are different mm -hmm. ways that you want to play around these two cards, and they warp the game in a seemingly the same way, but we think that they are very, very different cards. Yeah, so in general, um, I personally believe that the Mars one makes you want to play uh, slower, and then the this one makes you want to play faster. And the reason for this is just how the cards interact in terms of their effectiveness to hit your board. So basically, if I'm playing against the Mars one, right, and I have four creatures to a house or five creatures to a house, and I just reap with everything, I'm only getting hit once by that card. So if I spend all my time with this house fighting a whole bunch of times and getting a whole bunch of value off of that and then reap one all the time, I only get hit once with it. Right. It rewards a higher delta. And this mm -hmm. also means that it doesn't punish fighting as hard. Right? If you, yep. uh, the uh, Amber Conduction Unit only affects your opponent. So, yeah, sure, I'll spend my time fighting you. My delta is already affected by, I guess it's kind of by like minus one every turn, and that's mm -hmm. kind of rough. So I'm happy to be fighting into you until I get this board of four to five creatures in this dominant board position, and then I reap a bunch. I get stunned once, and hey, look, I made five Amber and only stunned once. Yeah, and then next turn I'm going to mass reap again. A different dude gets stunned, and the guy that's stunned gets unstunned, right? Like, you're, you're actually playing your same general game plan. You're just one amber behind. Like, it's actually not that big of a deal if you're comfortable playing that style. On the other hand, if your deck is like, I play a dude, I reap with him if able, but I kind of just accept that he's going to die. Like, maybe I'm just a racing deck. In this scenario, this card's actually pretty devastating because it is hitting you every single turn you reap, right? If every turn you're only reaping with one guy at a time, every turn you're getting hit with the stun it's just like it really punishes a sort of like short-term uh reap mentality so but on the other hand the orb uh that hits every creature on both sides and we think that this makes you want to play faster not just because it's symmetrical to your opponent but because it gives you more value of reaping with smaller boards yeah so the orb is hitting you no matter what right so a big reason why you want to fight with the board is you have this payoff, right? Like if I spend multiple turns using my board to fight your board, get your board down to nothing, and then mass reap, the value is that I don't mass reap once, I mass reap multiple times. The orb completely shuts that down. Like all of the work that you do fighting, you're only getting one mass reap off of it before they all get stunned and then like what you're just going to spend another turn to unstun everybody? Like that's not a good value play. On the other hand, if every time I just play a guy I just reap with it, I am getting the exact same value I would have gotten for the fighting without having to spend all of this multiple turns to get that value in the first place. Like, the, like it takes away the payoff. And when you take away the payoff, that's when you want to go for the more immediacy effect. Right, and there are, there are creatures that do this too, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the creatures kind of play more towards the, uh, the, the Amber Conduction Unit way, where if yeah. you can deal with them, then that's great. A lot of those creatures aren't even symmetrical. Yeah, and it's so like a lot of the creatures, they just only go towards one side. Um, but I, I think it's less about like whether it hits both sides or not and more about like, okay, if it hits me, am I benefited more by going faster or going slower? And so I think in particular, the Amber Conduction Unit, because it only hits the first one, you're greatly incentivized to actually play slower, focus more on fighting, wait until you can mass reap. Whereas the Orb, because it's always hitting no matter what, just get your value now because you're not going to get the payoff later. And a lot of these, I mean, they still get you the Amber, right? There are two that don't. There's Barrister mm -hmm. Joya and Rascal, a uh, uh, little little Rascal, Rapscal. Yep. Yeah, so those ones, they're, they're interesting because they just say you can't reap, period. Right, like if you're up against them, they are a complete embargo. Now, what makes them different is that you can potentially answer them, 
right? So like we're running under the assumption that you don't have a specific way to blow up the Orbit of Invictus, but maybe like I mean every deck can theoretically get rid of a creature. So if you're up against Little Rascal or Banisher Joya, one's much easier to kill than the other. So then you have to run into this like another layer of decision making where it's like okay, how much do I have to expend? to get rid of this thing that's bothering me and is it worth it in the same way that we talked about is it worth it to sacrifice your entire game plan to mulligan for the silver bullet is it worth it to ram three guys in a banister joya there there's a world where you have the answer in one house but you have four amber cards in another house and you can just get to seven and deal with that thing later and mm -hmm. that's more of a micro decision of is it worth spending a turn to play guys and then a turn to fight them and then also play the board game or maybe I can race with the other ways I can generate Amber. Yeah, and you just have to be flexible, right? You have to understand, like, okay, when this card's out here, what am I incentivized to do? Can I do that? Or do I need to do everything possible to, you know, try to find my bullet towards it? But yeah, what, what, what we're just trying to get across is that you don't have to kill them. You can still play around them. Uh, but the other cards that, well, we want to talk about... Uh, how about the the Grump Buggy and then the Proclamation, what is it, 3-something, 300-something? Yeah, uh, so the, those, are, those are good sister effects because um, they, they both do, in theory, the same thing, right? They both say your opponent's keys cost more money. But how you respond to each one of them is pretty different. Like, you have different options for each one, and it's, it's very subtle. Right, so the obvious distinction is uh, Proclamation wants you to have three different creatures. This re rewards uh, house diversity and honestly just a not very good board texture, right? It really mm -hmm. makes you want to have two, 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 and then your opponent can just kill, so your opponent can just kill one guy and then take you from, from uh, six to eight. That doesn't feel good. You really want to have two, two, two guys out, and that's, that's rough. Yeah, well, um, because normally, like, in, in your main house in particular, you want to protect your main house units, and you're kind of okay sacrificing your burst or support house units. But if you're up against Proclamation, now maybe you want to make sure that your other two houses keep dudes alive, and you might have to sacrifice a couple main house guys to make sure that you're not getting your keys costing eight all the time. Conversely, Buggy wants you to build one tall board. Hopefully, mm -hmm. like, let's just pretend that you also are playing Brobnar, and you have the bodies to support it. You have some lollops. You have... Uh, maybe some power tokens floating around. You actually want to play this main board game, and then you you come out on top, and then you stand on the mountain. Their keys cost eleven, and you just get to reap a bunch. But mm -hmm. you know, if you can't kill Grump Buggy and you can't uh, win the board, what are you supposed to reap through? Are you supposed to like just try to forge at nine? Yeah, like I, I think with Proclamation, you have more ability to ignore it, right? Like you can either accept that your keys are going to cost A for the whole game, or you can try to build your board in a way where you prevent it. Whereas Buggy, you have to fight. And that that's just the difference between your options and how you deal with each of these. And also, like again, your texture is different. Because also, like how you fight is different with Buggy, too. So like I personally, when I fight with my big dudes, I like to put as much damage on them as I can and then trade them off into something else that's big so they can like two or three for one someone. You don't really want to do that against Grump Buggy. Like with Grump Buggy, I don't want to have a Grok with four damage on it. That's really bad because then he just dies and that's my key control. I actually want to protect my big dudes as much as I can, whereas you don't normally do that. And maybe that's just an adjustment you have to make if you don't have the proper board control. Their power isn't to take down other guys when you play Grump Buggy. Their power mm -hmm. is to be resilient. Yep. Right? And the other, the other thing that happens with this is if you're trying to reap 
through these, suddenly you have to watch out for cutthroat research. You have to watch out for too much to protect in doorstep. There are suddenly much more powerful effects when your keys caught when you're trying to reap through to eight for, for both of these. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big deal. So looking at their board should determine how you do this. So like, let, let's take proclamation, right? You always have two options. You can either just try to race harder or you can try to build your board. Now, if you look at your opponent's deck and they have a whole bunch of like hurt you if you get to too much amber cards, like they have the too much to protect, the cutthroat research, the doorstep. Now, maybe you want to go the board route to make sure that you can all, like you just get to six or seven and try to forge your keys. Uh, to not get blown out by those cards. On the other hand, if you look at their deck and they have every single kill spell in the book, nothing but fat bodies, um, and you're thinking, oh, I should try to build my board, that ain't gonna work. Your board's gonna get killed off every single turn. So in that case, just accept that your keys cost eight and try to push forward. And like, again, this is, like we've talked about this a couple times, but you're gonna have to look at their entire Archon card and see what are they planning, right? If this card comes down, what, what are my potential adjustments I can make? And off of those adjustments, will it work, right? Can they respond to my response? And one thing that's important to note is that this goes deeper than just the text on the card and the obvious implications it has. It's not Mm -hmm. just always, okay, I've got to build all three guys. There are other answers outside of the building three guys or killing it, right? Mm -hmm. Reaping through and just understanding your opponent's tools with and against it are real. Yeah, yeah, there's certain... There's certain uh, warping effects that are stronger than others, right? It's like not all warping effects are created equal. Some of them you can ignore. Some of them you can't. But taking a moment to like consider your own deck and think, okay, how would my deck respond to this and should it respond to this is a really big deal. Right. So the these are, these are key control. These are amber generation. These are like, you know, how you win the game. And that's why they're at the top of the list and very valuable cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a couple cards that, like, we just talked about runaway board states, right? And there yep. are a couple cards in this set that really affect the board texture in a new way. And the two that, that we kind of like to look at are, are Hedroth Wall and the Grovekeeper. And to a less, lesser extent, uh, the, Pepe, uh, the Pampaka Anga that gives you a bunch yep. of power. Just turning guys... Uh, that that, that uh, last set had a, ban- a banner of battle, right? Yep. And that really felt, every time that came down, it felt like all of my guys just didn't die, right? Or I would fight and sometimes my efficiency would be just less, but it was kind of universal. Hedroth's Wall has this weird effect on a board where it only hits the side guys. It really affects how you want to play guys and where you're putting your kill spells, where you're putting your damage that, you know, maybe you put a couple damage on a guy so you can't add guys to that side of the flank. It really, and this set even has more positional influence. I think yeah. Hedros Wall is really interesting. Yeah, and, and so these are not quite as impactful, I don't think, as the other ones you just mentioned, but they're still worth noting because basically the kill spells you have in your hand and the kill spells you have in your board, i.e., your creatures, um, those all get affected. So basically, like, if you have the Relentless Whispers in your hand to deal with the Dust Switch when it comes out, that's not going to work if Hedroth's Wall is out there. Or another one is like, okay, if Grovekeeper's on the board and Grovekeeper is next to, say, a, a Streak or something. Um, streak's pretty annoying. But when it's at three, it's even more annoying. And it's like, okay, you have to deal with this now. Otherwise, this thing just gets big forever. So is the move, I go all in on taking out this Grovekeeper so that way this Streak doesn't get too big for my kill spells? Or is the move, just accept you have a five-card hand? 
like forever. You know, and you have to figure out what the answer is for that. And then for Hedroth's Wall, it's like, okay, there's a really valuable guy on the edge. Do I sacrifice creatures to kill that flank creature? Or do I just accept that that flank creature is too hard to kill and then more favorably trade the non-flank creatures because that card exists? Yeah, Hedroth's Wall, you really have to think one step further ahead. You have to really think, Mm -hmm. okay, uh, is there another way I can even take this creature out, right? You... Maybe you can't put a taunt guy next to it because you can't. If I put if I put two damage on your dusk witch on the edge, you can't play anything over there, right? Mm-hmm. If I have that weird quantum finger tap or a little beam buckler that moves a guy around, maybe yep. there's a way to change the math on this hedgerot's wall in your favor. It really affects how you can view your cards and your kill spells just positionally. Okay, so then um, let's let's transition to another really interesting artifact that uh, ruffles some feathers is it, the wrong way. Is it time? It's time. Okay. Talk about Heart of the Forest. It's time to talk about Heart of the Forest. <laughs> uh, so so there, there's some problem with this card, right? Let, like, uh, let's, we, let's talk well, we about Heart of the this. Forest. Yeah, so basically, if I have more keys than you do, then I can't forge more keys. You know, It always locks a game at one. Now, what we, what we want to point out in particular with Heart of the Forest is that Heart of the Forest is very much a means to an end, right? If somebody is playing Heart of the Forest, it is because they have some other goal in mind. And so when you're playing against it, if you don't have a way to deal with it or you don't want to compromise your whole game plan to deal with it, you have to figure out what are they trying to do with the Heart of the Forest and counter that in particular. Yeah, it's like Scooby-Doo Mysteries. You really get to figure out like what is happening. And sometimes it's just a means to an end. I think yeah. a very viable strategy for Heart of the Forest is just to use it, you know, play it at zero, build a board, fight the board, make sure you get board control, and then when you're ready, you reap six, reap six, reap six, and win. I think that's a very possible strategy for Heart of the Forest. Yeah, so th- this here would be the uh, the lowest level of Heart of the Forest, right? So this is where you're just playing Heart of the Forest to make sure that you don't ever end up down two keys to zero. Right? That's the only reason you're playing it. Um, and that might be the case. right? So if you look at your opponent's deck and you're like, they don't have anything, that might actually be it. So you don't, if you see that, you don't have to compromise everything you do for Heart of the Forest. It just means you play more or less your, your same game plan. But then once you get a little bit too far ahead, maybe you just like slow them down a little bit just to make sure that they don't have a comeback mechanic built in. Um, but like you're mostly playing the same in this lowest case. So I think the next level up is they're stalling for some sort of high amber play, some sort mm-hmm. of brig combo, some sort of uh, too much to protect, where you get up on a key, but then they doorstep you for a drastic amount, or they break you for a billion amber, and then you're at, you're at two keys but zero amber, and they win uh, quickly. And I think there yep. the answer is first understanding what other kind of key control they have, because once you pop that second key, you just have to race a little bit further to win, right? And this is assuming that there's no key cheat in play yet. Now, to illustrate how these amber plays work, so on the one hand, let's talk about Briggs. So when it comes to Briggs, the the game plan is I'm gonna let you get a key ahead, and then I'm gonna let you get a bunch of amber, and then I'm gonna wait until I can forge my first key, and then presumably have a better racing setup ready, so that way, once you forge your key, or once I forge my key, I hit you with the Briggs, so that way you go up to like 20 amber, and then I take like 14 of it after you forge your key, and then you being at two keys zero, and me being at like one key 14 is pretty even, especially if I already have everything else set up, 
But the other way to do it is you could do it via board. So maybe I'm a board control deck and I just have like a doorstep. And so the, the play is I'm going to play the heart of the forest, let you get up one key, and then I'm just going to build a board, build a board, build a board, build a board. Eventually I forge my key. And then once I forge my key, um, I'm also going to hit you with the doorstep. So the plan would be when I hit you with the doorstep, you're going to be at one key five amber and I'll be at like one key seven or eight amber, but then also have a massive board that you don't have. So I'm better positioned for the rest of the game. The big note here that makes it better than just getting uh, preventing getting blown out is that there's some sort of hard amber control that they're waiting for. Mm -hmm. And they craft a hand or a board or a situation that makes that amber control card hit really, really hard. And then they choose to make that next key, and then the game is on, and presumably they're ahead. But there's a third level which is really high, uh, high up there, and, you know, it's the scariest one, which involves some sort of a two-key turn, right? You go two keys mm -hmm. to one key, you can't forge your third one, I make some sort of a board with a ton of amber, maybe it's got a high delta, and then you forge your key, you play a key charge, and the game is over. And that's arguably the scariest one, granted that, you know, the community is still trying to figure out the best way to make that happen. Is it through archive? Is it through key abduction? Is it through mm -hmm. some nonsense logos board? And to fight against that, first, I mean, first you have to figure it out. That's the whole name of the game with Heart of the Forest. What are they yep. trying to do? But second, you have to control the game. If they can't get their uh, their setup, then, then, you, then you should be able to overcome it. Yeah, so as far as adjustments go, so in this case, like if you're in the Doomsday scenario where you're up against the Heart of the Forest deck and they have like this double key cheat that you can obviously see, this is where you compromise everything for your Silver Bullet. So if you have the Silver Bullet in your deck, you mulligan for it. If you draw it early, you hold it. Like you are you are selling out on stopping this one thing. Um, the, but this, you can also... The, oh, the Silver Bullet could be a Poltergeist. That's the obvious one. But yep. I would consider a Tentadin to be a, a Silver Bullet. He can fight the archives, right? If their deck is trying to archive this monster hand, maybe you, I mean, the Dasanya is obviously better, but, you know, yep. Tentadin is a thing that you can play towards. Yeah, and so I think with Tentadin, this is a good example of, like, if you're playing the, um, the Heart of the Force in general, it's always a means to an end, right? There is some other thing you're planning towards. So if you have any sort of way to interact with whatever thing they're trying to plan for, that's what you do. So if, if you're trying to build towards some combo, any sort of archive effect you have, any sort of draw card effect you have, anything that lets you get your deck tempo faster, I am trying to interrupt everything possible to make sure that you cannot get that combo off in any sort of reasonable amount of time. And as the opponent, if the Heart of the Forest player is trying to handcraft or archive craft, the other player should be able to go hog wild with whatever they want to do. They mm -hmm. should be able to pick off any measly Logos creatures that are trying to archive. They should be able to dig for their silver bullet tools if they have one. They should be able to spend the time to create the more favorable board position or the more favorable amber position for when the combo does go off, right? And if, yeah. the, if the answer is just to reap up to a billion amber, then maybe you can do that. Yeah, exactly. So you, there, there are multiple paths to get there. And as we showed with all these different, um, what's called game warp effects, I mean, we didn't even really go over much of the creatures, but there are plenty of creatures as well, but you can always kill them. But like, you have to always weigh like, okay, how much of my game plan am I compromising to try to deal with this versus like, can I just make smart adjustments? And that requires, you have to know what the card does, how it affects your deck and what their deck is trying to do with it. So that pretty much wraps it up for this episode of Bouncing Death Quark. Uh, you can find us online. We are on Facebook and we are at Twitter. We are at Death Quark for either one of them. Um, if you want, 
to get to know more of us, you can find us on Discord. Our Discord link is in either one of our social medias and you can meet the rest of the community as well. If you want more content, Codameron has a YouTube channel where he does a lot of Keyforge streaming. And if you want to go even further than that, we have merchandise. So if you want to get Bouncing Death Quark shirts, you want to get a Bouncing Death Quark um, playmat or any other thing that just has our logo, we have an entire shop. You can find it on our Discord and check that out as well. So yeah, tell your friends about it. Uh, enjoy the show and we'll see you next time. Thanks a bunch.